You found the Diggin' Oak Island podcast, the podcaster's journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery. I'm Dave McBride. Thank you so much for downloading and listening. If you have been listening to and enjoying our little show, please consider becoming a patron. Go to patreon.com slash Island to learn more on how you can support this podcast. All right, before we get things started here, let me talk a little bit more about that Patreon page. If you think this podcast is worth five bucks a month to you and you would like to see the podcast keep going strong and remain as ad-free as possible, please consider supporting the show by becoming a patron. You can go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash Island and sign up. Patrons get exclusive access to a live chat during the U.S. broadcast of each new episode of The Curse of Oak Island. The chat's always great fun, and I also get to hear a lot of that chat right here on the show, as I always use that to sort of uh, help supplement the episode review, as those uh, patrons certainly have such great points of view and (laughs) senses of humor as well on the show during that live chat. Let me welcome and say thank you to Bev, our new patron this week. Uh, Thank you so much for your support. Welcome to the Diggin' Oak Island family. Come join us on that uh, live chat during the broadcast of the show. Again, folks, go to patreon.com slash island to sign up and support the podcast. Remember, it's only five bucks a month. You can cancel any time. But if you prefer not to do the monthly thing, listen, that makes sense to me. Uh, You can always make a one-time donation to the podcast. You could do that via Venmo. Uh, just go to my Venmo uh, musician page. I'm a musician. That's what my job at Dave McBride music. Uh, that's like sort of my virtual tip jar. You can just go there and, uh, and leave, you know, whatever donation you want. Thank you everyone who has done that. Okay. We are going to start today's podcast as we love to do with uh, emails and messages from you, the listeners, let's begin on Facebook with the perfectly named Dave. No, it's not me writing myself. It's another Dave who says, someone recently said to you that the stone wall wasn't very high to keep animals corralled. As anyone who's kept animals will tell you, it doesn't really take height as much as width. Your average draft horse or dairy cow is not going to clamor over a pile of rocks, much like a cattle guard across a road. The uneasy footing is enough to keep hoofed animals contained. Sure, horses can jump fences, but farm animals aren't jumpers. I've seen rock walls built by piling rocks when clearing fields for farming be plenty of impediment to agricultural animals. Dave, great name, great stuff. Thank you so much. I love when the listeners chime in with stuff like this to help us out. Thank you for your insight here on this. I have never kept animals other than dogs, uh, so I really lean on you guys for this sort of expertise. Let me also add this. We know really very little about what was going on on Oak Island before the 1800s, and that's not at all, at all unusual for Canada or even for the United States, because there were not a lot of government records kept back then on the sort of day-to-day things like farming and that sort of stuff. But we do know that cattle were kept on Oak Island, pastured there, and of course oxen, which we see so much about. So would some farmer build such a wall to keep cattle on their property? Yes, that is a very good possibility considering what we know about the island's early colonial history. We were a little uh, stumbled by whether or not it would be what we're seeing here would be perfect for that job, but it sounds to hear from Dave that depending on what the animal is, that yes, it would. So again, thank you, Dave. Great to hear from you. 
going to stay on Facebook to hear from Bert who writes, ha ha ha, they actually found a way to mention Royston Cave again. And they found a clip of poor real scientist Emma Mulligan saying yes to edit after Rick mentioned the distance could have been marched by the Templars. Also, wow, they actually let Laird Niven say a couple of sentences on the show. That is huge. It means they actually found something interesting. Normally, we just get some carefully edited snippets. Finally, if the found feature actually is the money pit is is as the money pit is described, then maybe it has a certain function. So it makes sense that we're more than one that there would be more than one on the island. If I came across this in the woods, I would definitely be curious and dig. Bert, great stuff. You and if you did so in the late 1700s, early 1800s, you'd be curious and dig for pirate treasure because it was really in fad back then. Uh, again, great insight. I really agree with a lot of what you're saying here. I think this new pit structure and its potential relationship to the money pit is very, very intriguing. And not because I think it might help inform some sort of treasure theory, but actually, in my mind, something that's almost the exact opposite. I mean, could this be the way to actually finally disprove that the money pit is a treasure shaft theory once and for all? I mean, as depressing as that is, it sounds like that's possible. You know, if Laird and his team could find out what this new pit was actually used for, that can be a way of finding out exactly what the money pit was originally made for as well. And these boys or these gentlemen went up there, saw this, thought pirate gold and just started digging on something that they might not have been anything like that. Right. As you say, maybe it's quote, maybe it has a certain function. So it makes sense. There were more than one on the island. And from looking at this pit filled with rocks, it certainly doesn't seem to be just fill from a hundred foot deep treasure hole, right? It seems like there's something else that's going on here. Um, I said last week, the idea of this being a prototype or a test design for the actual money pit doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems more than a bit far-fetched, if I'm honest. But if Laird's excavations can tell us what it actually is, uh, and I'll wait for that, right, before I make any real judgment, then it's, this certainly puts the story of the original discovery of the money pit in a new light, or at least it could. Thank you, Bert. Great insight. Uh, keep them coming, my friend. All right. Time to head across the pond to Gary, who says, Hi, Dave. Just finished watching episode 21, Roman Around. Yeah, that's a good pun. I have a question regarding the proposed Roman lead token examined by coin expert Sandy Campbell. In the preamble of the meeting uh, to the meeting in the war room, we are shown a picture of the token. See the screenshots below, and I'll post those screenshots on our Facebook page. The token has only one hole in the middle. When we see Sandy handling the token, it now has two holes. And it is the same on the reverse as Sandy turns the token over. Are we to believe these are the same tokens? Or do they have a stash of these tokens awaiting discovery and someone in the production team has messed up? Regards, Gary. Gary, that last part is um, very uh, speculative to say the least. So let's put that aside. There's no way to prove that. But once again... I stand in awe of my listeners. Gary, that is some great work. That is some eagle eye work there, my friend. I'll put up, a, again, I'll put up the screenshots he sent over on the Facebook page, and you got it, guys. He is correct. Another hole seems to appear sometime during this meeting. And if you look even closer, you'll see other, what I would say are pretty big differences in the coin from one image to the next, especially in the sort of side scalloping which looks a little bit smoother or maybe even more than a little bit smoother in one photo than it does in the photo of Mr. Campbell's hands. 
Obviously, Gary, I have no answers for you on what this, why this might be. My only best guess, if I were to give them the benefit of the doubt, is that the photo is taken before it was cleaned up, that first photo. Then it was put through some scanners and cleaned up and all that. And uh, Sandy is examining it after these things were done. And perhaps that work caused these differences that we see here in these images. It's the best I can say. Great stuff. Let's go now to an email from Joe, which was entitled Lot 5, Baby, where he writes, What on earth is going on over there? This episode made for the, made up for the doldrums of the last three to four duds. I would love to see the conversations with the European historians and archaeologists that got cut. I'd bet my last pair of shoelaces that Alex Lagina is preparing some applications to grad school archaeology programs this offseason. He seems pretty fascinated by his work with Laird. Thanks, Dave. Keep up the good work, Joe. Oh, Joe, that is absolutely true. Um, he is fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by it. I don't know if that's true about Alex, but if it is, I'm with him. My wife would way rather be sitting uh, in uh, Billy Gerhardt's seat doing the big diggers and kind of stuff, but I want to do this stuff. It's such cool work. And you're totally correct about episode, episode 21. It really brought it. This one did too. Lot 5 was a mystery to most viewers of the show. and Finally getting to explore it is fascinating. I've yet to be convinced of anything that we've seen here that has that doesn't have some sort of reasonable explanation for it, but it's it's early days. This is going to take seasons, I would imagine, so who knows. Thanks for the kind words, my friend. Thank you for writing in. Let's hear now from another old friend of the show, Andy, who writes, and this is a long one, so so after I wrote to you, you rather humor, humorlessly, humorously sorry, asked me via the podcast, sounds like you're not a true believer, so then why do you still watch? I said that, Andy? Doesn't sound like me, but I believe you. Anyway, he continues. I watch for the same reasons you watch and Rick Diggs. We read about Oak Island when we were kids, and it still intrigues us. I love the fact that the show creates in animated segments of things I've always just had to imagine. I hate all the Templar talk, but know it's important to viewers. I can't honestly tell if the team believes in the Templar stuff or it's just for the show. I really think this team and the people that came before them are too early for all this digging. They should have walked away years ago. People have always wanted to travel to the moon, but there was no way to do it until 1969. Not the best example as they were too early for traveling to the moon, but they still did it. But you get what I'm saying. I think it's very important scene. Uh, I think a very important scene from a few years ago has been forgotten or dismissed. At some point, Marty threw a quarter down one of the tubes. A few seasons later, they found that quarter again. You think after all those holes they have dug, they would have found some evidence of treasure, the odd coin or piece of chain or papers like what came off the drill bit in the 1800s, an event that seems to have been manufactured to get more investors. All I can say is you can't prove a negative, so I just always hold out hope. That's the same hope that you, Rick, and little boy Andy still have to this day. Thanks, Audio Andy. Wonderfully well put, Andy. Wonderfully well put. Let me also add this. For 200 years, searchers came to Oak Island completely certain that they would be the ones to crack the mystery and certain that all those who tried and failed before them either didn't have the money or the resources or the brains or the latest technology, right, needed to do the job. And that's what caused them to fail. But there is a reason why I say this podcast is, quote, a journey to discover the truth behind the Oak Island mystery, and I don't describe it as some sort of podcast about finding treasure. Listen, all I can do is guess. 
on what might be there, right? But if you made me guess, and I don't have a good guess yet, I would say there is no treasure down there anymore. Uh, and I come to that conclusion for many of the reasons that you uh, talk about right there, along the same lines of what you're saying here. A lot of what has been quote unquote discovered in the money pit has somehow vanished over the years. The gold chain and the 90 foot stone are really the best examples of that. And we know for sure that many past treasure hunters have exaggerated claims to help raise funds for the dig. Every treasure hunter has done that, not just Oak Island treasure hunters, right? Now, again, this is my best guess, but if there was a treasure at some point, then it was either found by someone else or previously recovered by whoever put it there, since that makes the most sense. I mean, you don't bury all your money and valuables in a pit and then never come back for it. What would be the point of that? You know, <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. So what we are now looking for really, in my mind, is history and not treasure. Again, great email, Andy. Thank you so much. Let's go to Stephen now, who writes, the gentleman who emailed you had some interesting insights regarding how farmers level land. Also, when the tree stumps and roots are dug out to clear fields, the remnants are buried in the depression left from the roots and stump. Rocks, boulders, and whatever else may be laying around can also end up buried. Over time, these tree remnants decay, and the dirt used to fill the holes settles, and guess what? It looks like a funnel-shaped depression full of rocks and boulders. My father just had to deal with this on our farm in Michigan where a large depression magically appeared in the middle of a field where a giant tree had been taken out 20 or more years ago. I immediately thought of this while you were reading the above-referenced email. Thanks, and keep up the good work, Stephen. Again... (laughs) You guys, you listeners to this show, you are absolutely amazing. I just couldn't do this podcast without you because you always come through with such incredible information. Steven, is that true? Did you really have something like this appear? I mean, after 20 years, is there any chance you got a picture of it? (laughs) I mean, I'd love to use it for comparison because that sounds really cool. Now, I would assume that Laird knows this as well and can tell the difference from one thing to the other. It's hard to trust sometimes the editing because he might be saying this stuff, but then it just sort of gets edited out because they want it to be intriguing for obviously for ratings purposes, which we all have to sort of deal with. But would, you know, my aim here is to once again, get layered on the podcast this summer and maybe help clarify all of this kind of stuff. Um, you know, so, you know, now that I'm thinking about it, maybe the best thing for me to do is to ask you guys for questions for Laird, since you seem to be so well-versed on a lot of this kind of stuff. Steven, great, great stuff. Thank you so much for that. You know, the only thing I would say that is a difference between one thing and the other is, uh, you know, the woods have grown up around there, but I, I, I don't know that we have any real feel on what was cleared at the time, if this would have been an area or the money pit would have been an area cleared for pasturing. Uh, And then since then the woods have grown up as it's just sort of been left around. Um, I'm not sure I have that information. I have to look into that and see, but that could be a difference, right? That could be something that makes this one on lot five and the money pit a little bit more intriguing, but man, what a great theory. Thank you so much. It's always great to be able to go down the road of something possible and something almost likely like this rather than going down the road of it's a prototype for a hundred foot treasure shaft which is kind of outlandish when you compare the two you got to eliminate things like this like what dan's saying first before you jump to those kind of things anyway 
great stuff. Great, great stuff. You know, um, okay. Let me hear. Uh, and I said, Dan, I meant Steven. I'm sorry. <laughs> let, let me hear now from Dan, who says in episode 18, a quadrilateral move at 12 minutes and 27 seconds in Terry Matheson, who had come to the quadrilateral to examine the blue clay says, and I quote, it looks a little bit similar to what we are seeing in the money pit. He didn't say what was reported as being found in the money pit, but rather what we are seeing. Then at 28 minutes and 30 seconds in, when the transition to the garden shaft, the title at the bottom of the screen says, Money Pit. Is this an editing error? Was this a future scene that they moved back into this episode? Does the garden shaft turn out to be the money pit? Also, I just caught the promo where Rick says, quote, we will be underground in the money pit for the very first time. I don't know what this all means, but I think we are getting close to answers. Dan. Dan. I'm not going to get into those specific scenes. I will say that um, the not a mistake, but they often refer to the garden shaft as being in the money pit area. So we kind of lump those all in. I do that here too, right? I lump it into the money pit work as opposed to the swamp or Smith's Cove or lot five or lot 32 or whatever it might be, right? So that could be one way to sort of justify that error. But another thing that I can say, right? And again, I can't, talk specifically about those scenes, but one thing I can say, and I could say this with some real certainty, is that the editors have been absolutely trying to blur the lines between the garden shaft and the money pit for the viewers, and I don't really know why. Folks, again, I think I've said this every week, but the garden shaft is a searcher shaft. That's what it is. There was no question of that. I've said this a million times this year, but the original money pit collapsed and was totally obliterated. It cannot look like what the garden shaft look like. looks like. The garden shaft is not the money pit. And the reason I've said this over and over is because it keeps coming up. The editors keep trying to infer that somehow the garden shaft might be the money pit. It's kind of getting frustrating because the way they're dating it doesn't make any sense. Now, if your theory is these guys were on the money pit and this is the shaft for the money pit, that happened after the collapse in the 1850s. That seems possible, but out not really likely because there's a lot of records from after that point. And also, the dating wouldn't be the way it is on this wood. So, I mean, <laughs> it just doesn't make any sense to me. Anyway, we'll talk about that more in just a second. That's it for the emails and messages this week. If you have any questions or comments you would like to have answered on a future podcast, just send them along to digginoakisland at gmail.com. Right, it's time now to discuss Season 10, Episode 18 of The Curse of Oak Island called A Barrel Full of Clues. Now, this is a pretty dense episode, so let's try and unpack it just a little bit. We're going to start by quickly going through the areas that the team only really kind of touched on, beginning again with the money pit. For the la for like the sixth episode in the row, the, uh, the show actually opens with a member of the cast, a member of the team, this time it's Charles Barkhouse, going to the garden shaft to check in on progress. And it's always followed by a long recap of the work, um, you know, what it could all mean, the gold traces, there's usually a shot of the Templar somewhere, on and on and on. I don't want to harp on this too much, since it's only one scene, but I really think the editors need to kind of get a little more creative 
and come up with way, maybe a different way to start the show? Yeah, seriously, guys. I mean, go back and watch the last five or six episodes and see if you can spot the differences because there are very few from one opening scene to the next. The only thing worth noting is something we talked about in the email section of the show, which we just finished off on. So let's go back to it. And that is this purposeful blurring of the lines between the garden shaft and what is the original money pit. Again, Charles is the team member on the scene. And in his discussion with the foreman from Dumas, he says of the garden shaft that, quote, it quite possibly this is where the original money pit could be, or the real money pit could be, is what he says. Again, not to repeat, but that really is very far-fetched and almost impossible unless he's trying to say the original money pit might have been located closer to where the garden shaft is than a- and also closer than anyone originally thought. I mean, that's possible again. That's another possibility. But they're not doing that. They're not giving us that. What they're saying is this sort of blurring of the lines between the garden shaft and the money pit. Steve on the Patreon noted... Quote, related to the actual garden shaft work, remember that Dumas said that it was about 50 days of actual work. So, uh, Steve, does that include the delay from last week? Either way, another thing that we can say about the garden shaft is that they have been saying, saving this for the end. They have been playing with the timeline quite a bit regarding this particular project. All of that's fine with me. I know it bothers some listeners, uh, some viewers and some listeners. It doesn't bother me at all. Uh, so, uh, anyway. That's it for the Money Pit area in this episode. Let's go quickly to a really interesting project happening over at Lot 5, and that is this stone pit we were talking about again in the uh, email section with dimensions matching the descriptions of the original Money Pit discovered in 1795. Marty comes over to see Laird, being helped by archaeologist Helen Sheldon. I think I heard Marty actually call Laird Lord Niven. Ooh, that might be his new name for this podcast. I love that. Lord Niven. <laughs> Laird says they have recovered some artifacts in the area, including pottery from the 1750s. So remember what we talked about, how this pit might help inform us on what the money pit actually was, if not the treasure shaft, meaning if these dimensions are the same and they are related, perhaps we can learn what the money pit really was and that maybe Daniel McGinnis and his friends just mistook it for a treasure shaft, didn't see this other pit, didn't know what it was used for. That dating of 1750 certainly fits that theory. So we always like to get very excited about, oh, it's before the money pit. Well, it's before the money pit, but it's also after the island was inhabited. So again, I'm not trying to disprove the money pit right here. I don't have enough. I'm just saying this might end up being one of those ways that somebody really can. Now, quickly, let's talk about the swamp. We see Billy Gerhardt and Steve Guptill excavating this new stone ramp area while Gary Drayton metal detects the spoils as they come out. Gary finds another old spike, similar to many they found in the past, right? We also get to see Billy and then his guys cleaning up the ramp so we can have a better look at it, which we really want. They did that, obviously, with the stone road, which as the years went on or the episodes went on, we got better and better looks at what it really looked like. Later in the show, Dr. Spooner, the swamp doctor, arrives to have a look, and he pulls out a little piece of wood, a little stick out from between the rocks, which he says could help date when the rocks were placed here. Now, I don't have much to add here yet since we really need this dating before we can dive into it, but Eric on the Patreon commented, quote, Spooner said that the branch sample they took was squashed between rocks, and it indicated to him that the rocks were placed over an already existing swamp. But... 
The Templars built the swamp with the help of the Romans, all inspired by the works of Shakespeare. Let's just keep throwing stuff against the wall and see what the aliens did before the Big Bang. Sorry, just too much on this week's episode. Um, you know, Eric, I get it. I get what you're saying. Uh, but again, rather than get frustrated with this work, if you really are a skeptic, I think we can view this pit as uh, you know a possibility to sort of further that narrative, right? That skeptical of the treasure theory narrative. So, uh, you know, despite the fact that uh, you're getting a little, uh, you know, a, a, a little snarky there, um, you know, I think, hold on, there's more to, there's more to come here. I, I, I can't say I totally agree. The team seem, the, here's the thing though, here's the frustrating thing for you, Eric, right? The team seems to be making very little progress on any way on the timeline front. However, this stone road and now this possible ramp is, to me, strange and fascinating and much, very much worth looking into. If nothing else, it is a piece of undocumented history that can only serve to, again, achieve that progress of getting the timeline and figuring out what went on here. So later in the war room, we see this nice little aerial shot of the ramp. It's still not cleaned enough to get a real sense of the exact size and purpose, but it's starting to look more and more like that stone road. And in that very same scene, Laird calls it, quote, definitely man-made. So, Eric, while I understand your frustration and share much of it as well, this project's interesting to me. I like it, uh, especially from an archaeological and historical angle. All right, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back and take a flight to Italy. Okay, folks, it's time to fasten your seatbelts, put your trade tables in the upright position, because we are about to land in Italy, along with Rick and Alex Lagina, Peter Frenetti, Doug Kroll, and Corian Mall for a great little research trip. They're in Camerano, Italy, a drop-dead gorgeous little town on the east coast of Italy along the Adriatic Sea. They're joined here by uh, researcher Emiliano Sacchetti, who we've met before in a couple of war room scenes, and another researcher named Alberto Rancantini to look at a series of ancient caves that date back to the Roman era, right? Now, these caves, according to the narration, were supposedly, let me put that in quotes, reworked by the Templars. So there's this long recap of the history of the Knights Templar again, right, through their persecution and their uh, growth and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we've seen this so many times. It's 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 a little tough to watch it sometimes because this one was particularly, you know, a couple of minutes where we could have gotten more new information. Again, I don't want to criticize the editing too much today. I've already done that. But uh, sometimes I feel like this stuff isn't really necessary anymore because we've seen so much of it. Uh, the narrator says <laughs> that the caves are believed, in quote, to have been reconstructed by the Knights Templar in the fourth century. I think it's very important that he says the word believed, because quite honestly, we're not very sure. Some people think it was, some people don't, and we don't normally get that kind of, um, you know, diversity in opinion here on this show. Anyway, so my question here from looking at this and all the things that we're seeing here and the cave that has the shape of the, of the, uh, of the cross, the lead cross and this conversations that they're having. My question is, what is the theory? 
because what seems to be the theory to me is that some Templar or Templars made a cross in the shape of a cave that they found in Italy, a Roman cave that they found in Italy, and then went to Oak Island and dropped it on the shores of Oak Island. Uh, really? That, that, that's what we're trying to do? I mean, they like to make these little tangential connections, but they never really think out the connection for us to the point where it makes sense to why it is a connection, right? So it just seems strange to me. I love this kind of research. You guys know I love it. Um, but sometimes they don't they don't take it from a research angle, instead just take it from a from a TV angle, I guess is the what I'm saying here. Corian Mall points out a little goose paw carving that's um, similar to the one they found in Liverpool, Nova Scotia, a few episodes back. It's really cool. Uh, doesn't mean Templars were either place. Just means that the goose paw shape uh, was used really all over the place, which we talked about. Uh, and I, well, the other thing I didn't really understand is what was it on? What was that little hard clay thing? I was curious what that was. Anyway, the guys finish up at the caves in Camerano. Instead, they go to Asimo, I think it was, Italy, to meet somebody named Professor Fabrizio Bartelli who is a historian and a modern-day member of the Knights Templar. I love this stuff. I love these things. Got to tell you, it doesn't sound like an honest broker, but be that as it may, he's got some cool information. Uh, they go look at another Roman-era cave system that the Templars possibly used. This one, we seem to see a lot more Templar-style markings in it uh, than in the other one, kind of looks a little bit more like the Royston cave. Um, again, going back to the Royston cave, that is possibly, uh, what do I say it? Uh, not genuinely a Templar location. Um, I don't know about this one as much, but, uh, this one at least seems to be a little less Roman and a little more medieval just from those kind of things that you're seeing there. Maybe I'm reading that entirely wrong. Any of you guys out there have a opinion on that? Let me know. Alex and Peter, they find a symbol that looks to them a lot like the O in the H.O. stone. So we go into a discussion about the H.O. stone. We leave a lot of information about the H.O. stone out. Um, again, <laughs> I, I don't want to. I've done this many times before with the H.O. stone. I'm going to tell it to you again. It is not an ancient stone from any information anyone has. It was discovered in the 1920s or around then. Um, it had a lot of other writing on it besides this, modern writing. Uh, and then it was blown up because the people on the cove, Judri's Cove, who found this, thought the <laughs> treasure or something might be inside of it. So what the H.O. stone is, is a piece of that stone after it was blown up. <laughs> so... Again, uh, I get kind of tired of these things, of these like old and pretty well disproven things like the Xena map and stuff like that, that they keep harping on, keep going back to when there's so much other information that they could go to. Um, again, the connection is flimsy at best. And I'm not sure, I think in the long run, I'm not really sure, and, and I'm hoping I'm, I find this out, right? I'm not really sure why comparing symbols found in Italy and those found in Portugal with symbols found in Oak Island, I, I'm not sure how they further the investigation other than trying to find 
a tangential connection with the Templars, because these symbols weren't only used by the Templars. They were used by a lot of organizations for many centuries. So I'm not really sure what they're going with that. I love these kind of trips. You guys know I love it, and I love this one too. It's so cool to see these locations and to hear about the Templar past and the possible Templar past, right? Anyway, the whole thing with the Templars in Italy ends with a uh, discussion and a meeting with somebody named Professor Adriano Gaspani. He is an archaeoastronomer. Now, what he says is that uh, with stars and alignment of stars and the history of the alignment of stars, he can possibly date the cross by relating the cross points to positions of stars in the past, right? So he says in the beginning of all this, quote, if the monument is astronomically oriented and then goes into his idea. Now, before we even get into his idea, my first question would be, what if it's not? And do we know if Nolan's cross actually was astronomically oriented or was it just a surveyor who put it up there using you know, tape measures and things like that to make a cross? If we conclude that Nolan's cross was not fabricated, which a lot of people feel Fred Nolan fabricated it, but if we conf- conclude that it isn't, and I don't know whether it is or not, or either is or isn't, um, we certainly have no reason to believe that it was made with astronomy involved. We could theorize that, but we don't know that for sure. And the reason why I say that is because he then goes through his archives and relates the points on the cross to stars, which tells him that the alignment suggests it was made in the 1200s. Again, my problem with that is we don't really know whether or not it was built with stars in mind. So how can we conclude it's the 1200s? Is it possible? I suppose. I suppose it was made using stars in mind. I don't know that, but I suppose it was. Um, it very well, I, in my mind, let me put it like this. In my mind, it, it could equally be not used with astronomy in mind or used with astronomy in mind, right? Uh, it, it, it just, there's no reason to believe any of that if you believe in the genuine uh, qualities of the cross itself. Again, this kind of information is cool stuff. But what it, what the mistake I think some people make, and the editors included, but I think also viewers and stuff, and the thing that I want to stress to you is this doesn't mean it was made in the 1200s. The next step to prove whether or not this is correct is to prove whether or not the cross is genuine and the cross was made at a certain time and with certain ideas in mind like astronomy. Until you do that, I mean, in my mind, this information is just speculation. That's going to do it for this episode of the Digging Oak Island podcast. I got to tell you guys, I love when the pot, when the show makes me think like this, right? I know I end up sounding like, uh, you know, snarky or I don't believe anything or skeptical, uh, but that's the way this show, I really want this podcast to be kind of critical thinking, right? And I, I just I love when they give you so much dense stuff to kind of get critical about and really dig into. And they did that. 
really well this week, and I think we're going to get some more because that's usually how this uh, these seasons end, right? All right, guys, don't forget you can help out the show by becoming a patron. If you think the show is worth five bucks a month to you, head over to patreon.com slash Island to learn more. And if you prefer, you can also make a one-time donation to the podcast via Venmo. Just use the username at Dave McBride Music. Also, if you would like to help out the podcast in another way, then you can do so by giving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your shows. Thanks to everybody who's done that. Uh, I really do appreciate it. Don't forget you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter. We are dig- at Diggin' Oak Island. Uh, and if you have any questions or comments you want to send directly to me, I'll tell you the best way to do that is via email, Island at gmail.com. I can also receive them via direct message on Facebook or Twitter. I'm just not that big a social media guy, as you probably know from my social media pages. So uh, if you really want to get something and make sure it gets on the air, um, send it via email. It's just, I, I, I can't avoid that one. It comes right to me and I look at it all the time and I'm always reading what you guys are writing. Um, and again, just keep in mind, if you do send me an email or a direct message on social media, I'm probably going to answer it here on the podcast. So if you don't want your message read aloud, just make a note of that for me. Well, guys, it's crown time. So until we speak again, I'm Dave McBride. Thank you for listening to Digging Oak Island.